0: is Crimes of the Centuries. When a mutilated body was discovered near a farm in the Ann Arbor Township on July 26, 1969, the county sheriff tried to keep things quiet. He didn't even notify the dead girl's family straight away. It wasn't how he would usually operate under the circumstances, but unfortunately, he'd had ample time to prepare for the discovery, and he was working on a hunch. Whoever killed 18-year-old Karen Sue Byneman was likely to return. Washtenaw County Sheriff Doug Harvey felt certain of this because Karen Sue wasn't the killer's first victim, or even his fifth. She was number seven in a string of grisly homicides that had dotted towns and townships between Ypsilanti and Ann Arbor, Michigan, paralyzing two separate college campuses with fear. Police issued warnings.
1: We were putting out broadcasts to the girls, young girls. Don't hitchhike. Stay, go down Washington Avenue and here they were. You know, the girls were out there just...
0: This is Sheriff Harvey talking years later.
1: It was just terrifying to say, God Almighty, what is wrong? What is wrong with you kids? And, you know, But uh, it was a terrifying time for all of us, and it, it was very, very, very bad.
0: Each time a body had been found, it looked as though it had been recently visited, the telltale signs being fresh tire tracks or footprints nearby. It was a disturbing thought, but then the state of the bodies made clear to investigators that they were dealing with an especially disturbed killer. The spree had been dubbed the co-ed killing since Sheriff Harvey was determined that Karen Sue would be the killer's last victim. To that end, after the body was photographed and removed from the scene, he ordered deputies to replace it with a store mannequin he hoped would be lifelike enough to look like a corpse under the veil of darkness. The plan was for the sheriff and a select crew to stake out the site in hopes the killer would come back View his handiwork one last time and get nabbed while doing so. Sheriff Harvey hoped like hell his plan worked. Whoever this killer was had made a fool out of multiple law enforcement agencies, killing again and again despite the entire region being on high alert looking for him. The public was more than antsy. It was angry. Pretty soon, cops and prosecutors would be fighting for their jobs, and worse than that, more young women would be left fearing for their lives. So the trap was set, and then everything went haywire. Before I spell out what went wrong on that muggy July 9th in 1969, let's back up and explain what led to it. To do that, we have to start on a different muggy July night, This one occurring two years earlier, in 1967. The date was July 9th, a Sunday. A 19-year-old Eastern Michigan University student named Mary Therese Flazar had had a busy day, though busy with mostly boring stuff. It's strange how mundane someone's last day alive can sometimes be. Anyway, for Mary, her day began around 6.30 a.m. with a shower. She had dressed in a loose orange dress with white polka dots and put sandals on her feet, in which she walked two blocks to attend Mass at a church on Cross Street. After that, she went to the university's field services office to work, starting around 8 a.m. Even though it was a Sunday and the work was mostly clerical, it was busy. The field services office helped organize and coordinate extracurricular activities for EMU as well as for other schools. And on this day, registration was underway for a week-long cheerleading course. It sounds like it was popular. Lots of girls flitted in and out of the office to file their paperwork. Mary was so busy, she barely even had time to break. Later in the day, Mary's sister called and invited her to go swimming with some friends. She said she'd love to come hang out, but she was on her period, so she planned to skip the swimming part, but when she got to the lake around 5 p.m., it was packed. With no parking spaces available, she moved on to another nearby lake, a logical place, she figured, for her sister and friends to go if they, too, couldn't find parking at the original spot. Turned out, though, that the sister and friends had arrived earlier than Mary had, so they were already at the original lake and had no idea that Mary couldn't make her way in. When she didn't show up, they figured she had just changed her mind about coming at all. At the second lake, Mary said hi to a lifeguard she knew who was working. Then she started playing her guitar for a bit. Did I mention this was the 1960s? Because how 60s a scene is that? We know about this little impromptu concert because she drew a bit of an audience who later told police that the show broke up around 6.30 p.m. No one knows where Mary was between then and around 8 p.m., which is when her roommate told police she came back to their shared apartment. It so happened that she arrived just after her sister and friends had swung by to check on her since they'd missed her at the beach.
2: Well, now we're in front of 413 Washtenaw, which is where Mary Flazar's apartment was.
0: This is a YouTuber called Retro Kimmer, who doesn't have a ton of subscribers, but I thought I'd include her because she went to the trouble of visiting several sites linked to the co killer slayings. When Mary reached her apartment, she didn't love that her roommate's boyfriend was there too, so Mary went for a walk, saying she needed some fresh air. This was around 8.20 p.m.
2: Now we're on the corner of Emmett and Hamilton, and this is where Mary Flazar was last seen, and she was walking right down this corner and she was walking down Hamilton Street just like these people here but only in the other direction there was an older man sitting on this porch that saw Mary he knew her and he watched her walk right down Hamilton a car pulled up to her and she waved him off and he screeched around the corner and came back and did it again this time Mary went behind a vehicle and he couldn't see her anymore
0: The encounter stuck in the witness's mind because, as Retro Kimmer said, the witness knew Mary. She had actually helped him with his car one time. Also, it stood out because it seemed odd that someone would offer Mary a ride home when she lived in that very neighborhood. Plus, Mary's body language made it clear that the offer wasn't welcome. What precisely happened next, we'll never know. What we do know is, as journalist Rob Wilcheck would later report on Fox 2 Detroit, Mary Flesher was never seen alive again. Her body was found dumped here a month later near Laforge
1: and Gettys Roads. She'd been repeatedly stabbed in the chest. State police say the killer had come back to the scene at least three times. He'd moved poor Mary's body and had apparently mutilated her further with each visit.
0: The scene was among the most gruesome police in the area had ever seen. Mary had not only been stabbed some 30 times, but her feet had been severed above the ankles, and on one hand, her thumb and parts of her fingers were missing. She was decomposed enough that it was tough to tell for sure what had been done before or after death, but either way, the sight was upsetting to the most hardened cops, and it wouldn't be the last time they saw a victim in such a state. There was little evidence around Mary's body, so little that investigators felt certain that the place Mary was found wasn't the place she'd been killed. Whoever had done this seemed to have killed her in one location, then dumped her in another. Mary's parents were beyond devastated. They asked to see their daughter's remains, to say goodbye, but investigators advised against it. You'd better not, they said. The Flazars knew what this meant that their daughter was in such horrible shape physically that they'd undoubtedly be traumatized by even seeing her. So they relented. She was placed inside a coffin boasting twin locks and a permanent seal. But before the funeral, something odd happened. A young man stopped by the Moore Funeral Home in Ypsilanti and said he was a family friend. He wanted to take a picture of Mary's body. Of course, the workers at the funeral home shooed him away. They told police about the encounter. They said they had noticed that the young man had been driving a bluish-gray car and they had found it odd he was asking to take pictures when he didn't seem to have a camera on him. Police wanted to find this guy and see if he was linked at all to the young man who'd pestered Mary the night she died while driving a similar-looking car, but the funeral home workers hadn't noticed enough about the guy's appearance to be of any use. According to the book The Michigan Murders, written in 1976 by Edward Keyes, one staffer offered this maddeningly vague description of the camera creep. Quote, The guy was sort of young, white, ordinary-looking, wore ordinary clothes, probably sports shirt and slacks, no colors, features, distinguishing marks, nothing to follow up. End quote. Without any leads, the case drifted from the front page to the inside of local newspapers. Days would pass without updates and then weeks. Nearly a full year after Mary had disappeared, another body surfaced. This time the victim was Joan Elspeth Shell, a 20-year-old EMU art student. Joan had just wrapped up her sophomore year at the college. She'd been born and raised in Plymouth, Michigan, but was happy to stay near college over the summer, where she had a summer job and an apartment with friends. Now, if you don't know Michigan geography well, and I admit I'm not great with it despite having lived there for a good decade, there's about eight ish miles between Ypsilanti and Ann Arbor. The latter town is home to the University of Michigan, where I lived for a year on fellowship, while Ipsy has EMU. UM is the more expensive of the two and ranks higher on those lists of supposedly best schools, but EMU has some claims to fame too, and in practical terms, it's good to understand that there's a lot of overlap between the two campuses, at least in terms of college kids from one school hanging out and or partying with kids from the other. Hitchhiking the eight miles to hit a frat party on the neighboring campus was incredibly common in the 1960s when lots of kids didn't have their own cars, cabs were more of a pain, and Uber didn't exist. That's what Joan Schell was doing the last time she was seen alive, which was June 30th. She was hitching a ride from Ipsy to Ann Arbor to hang out with her boyfriend, who was at a mutual friend's apartment. Joan actually hadn't set out that night to hitchhike. She'd meant to take the bus, according to a friend of hers who had tagged along to make sure she got on the bus safely. Unfortunately, it turned out that Joan had missed the last bus of the day, and despite her friend's suggestion that she just scrap the Ann Arbor visit, Joan decided to hitch a ride instead. The friend, Susan Colby, told police that Joan had climbed into a red and black Pontiac Bonneville. Inside the car were three young men, all clean-cut and friendly-looking. The driver in particular stood out because his hair was so neatly trimmed, not a trendy style for college boys in the late 60s. Colby tried to talk Joan out of going with men, but Joan promised she would be careful and she'd call after she got to her destination. When her body was found about a week later, it looked much like Mary's corpse the previous year. Joan had been stabbed some 25 times. Her skull was fractured. Her throat was slashed. Her miniskirt had been tied around her neck. She hadn't just been killed. She'd been tortured. She wasn't as decomposed as Mary had been, naturally, because her body had been found after a week rather than a month. But the decomposition was odd. The top portion of her body was rough, but the bottom half strangely well-preserved. The pathologist couldn't quite make sense of it beyond to assume that in the week the body had been missing, it'd been stored in a way that exposed the top half to natural heat, while the bottom half was in a naturally cool environment. While investigators were pretty sure the first victim, Mary, had been moved after she was murdered, they were positive this had been the case with Joan. The state of her decomposition made that crystal clear. And again, based on some fresher-looking tracks, it seemed the killer had visited the corpse sometime after depositing it. There was one more similarity between the kills, too. This is Sheriff Doug Harvey talking to a reporter.
1: On every single scene we went to, and it was always after it seemed like it rained the night before. So remember that, Bill? It was always always after it rained. It was So the evidence, there wasn't much evidence there.
0: Harvey began hatching a plan.
1: And every time it rained, I said, well, we called, we set up a plan called Babysitter. We put on more patrol cars, more cars that were out, more, as many cars as we had. We had volunteers going
0: out and just searching for anything. They came up empty handed each time. Meanwhile, Harvey, who was really young for the post, only in his 30s, had sense enough to know his department needed as much help as it could get. Crime in general wasn't exactly rare in Washtenaw County, but this kind of crime was. I
1: says, I want the Michigan State Police Crime Lab here. want the best I can get. So we, we called the crime lab right away. I want them in here. And uh, I'd call the FBI if I had them. You know, I, I, I just wanted, we wanted some professional
0: help. Investigators canvassing during rainstorms came up empty, but tips started pouring in. Most were useless, but they were still dutifully checked out. For example, a couple of questions came in about a journalist who'd been covering the murders. John Cobb was a young reporter for the Ypsilanti Press. Cops descending on the crime scenes noticed he seemed underfoot every time they got around. He claimed he reached the scene so quickly because he listened to a police scanner in his car, but some wondered if he was the culprit behind his own front-page headlines. In another instance, a young man was mentioned in passing by a couple of kids who said they could have sworn they had seen him with Joan Shell the night she died. The witnesses had been drinking, though, and they said even if they were right about seeing him with Joan, he was too good a dude to be a killer, so they were hesitant to even give his name to police. But investigators said, hey, we've got to chase down every tip. And so the witnesses relented and told them that John Norman Collins was the man they thought might have been with Joan that night. Police interviewed Collins, who had grown up in Centerline, Michigan, a Detroit suburb. He was an education major at EMU, a clean cut looking guy with a lanky frame who drove a junker of a car, nothing like either the grayish Chevy or the red and black Pontiac seen near the victims. In fact, most of the time, he drove a motorcycle he said. Police interviewing wanted the tip to lead somewhere, but it just didn't. Nothing about this EMU frat boy screamed killer to them. And besides, his mother not only verified that he'd been with her in center line the entire weekend Joan was killed, but it turned out the kid was even the nephew of an Ypsilanti State Police corporal. And that uncle vouched for him too. Cops had two dead bodies that seemed very much connected and a growing fear that this was only the beginning. Sometimes serial killers start slow, sort of testing the waters to see if they can really get away with murder. After enough time passes that they feel comfortable they're smarter than police, the time lapse between bodies sometimes starts to shrink. That's what happened with the so-called co-ed killer, who, by the way, would later be dubbed the Ypsilanti Ripper, apparently by media wanting a sexier moniker, because Lord knows we journalists can't responsibly spread word about a killer on the loose without first bestowing a title that's both scary as hell and headline-friendly. On that front, a note that all the headlines from the era that I could find stuck with co killer during the actual era of the killings. In fairness, there have been other co-ed killers over the years, so I'm guessing the Ripper label that came later was an attempt to differentiate this killer from, say, Edmund Kemper, whose murders made headlines a few years after the slangs in Ypsilanti. A book about Kemper titled The Co-Ed Killer was released the same month as Edward Key's book about the Michigan cases, so I think that's the reason Co-Ed Killer stuck with Kemper. Key's book, meanwhile, was called The Michigan Murders, whereas I don't see Ypsilanti Ripper entering news coverage until 2017 after a separate book about the case came out. That one was called Terror in Ypsilanti. It's all about marketing, folks. Anyway, there had been nearly a year between victims number one and number two in Michigan. Suspected victim number three was found eight months later on March 20th, 1969. That's when the body of Jane Mixer was discovered. Now Jane's case didn't exactly fit the mold. For starters, she was a student at the University of Michigan, not at EMU. She was a grad student while the first two victims had been undergrad. The most notable difference, however, was the cause of death. While Mary and Joan were stabbed two dozen plus times, Jane had been shot twice in the head. Her body had been left near a gravestone in a cemetery. Despite the noteworthy differences, there were enough similarities to pique police interest. Jane had posted a notice on a UM bulletin board looking for a ride to Muskegon, Michigan, some 200 miles away. She'd planned to go home for the weekend, and she told friends that she got a reply to her post straight away and was getting a ride with a stranger supposedly named David Hansen, who police figured out didn't exist after Mixer's body was found. Now, just as with the other two slayings, there was an unknown motorist involved. In Mary's case, she'd been accosted by someone trying to get her into his car. In Joan's case, she'd accepted a ride from strangers. Plus, though Jane had been fatally shot, there were other elements to her case that felt a little too familiar. Former Sheriff Harvey again.
1: All the women had long, dangly earrings. Uh, The girls were, their breasts were mutilated. They were slashed. And there was always some kind of an instrument or a twig that was shoved up in her vagina.
0: Now this is Harvey speaking years later. And in fairness, I'll mention that Keyes' 1976 book suggests that some of the cases shared these details, but not every single one of them. Regardless, what's important to understand is that there were enough similarities that police suspected after Jane's body was found that the same killer had struck again. The turnaround between Jane and victim number four was way shorter. Just three days after Jane was found, a younger victim, this one identified as 16-year-old Marilyn Skelton, was discovered by a road crew. Marilyn was a troubled kid with a record for selling drugs. Her death must have been excruciating, and while I won't be overly descriptive here, I don't want to gloss over the rage unleashed upon this teenager. She'd been beaten and tortured. One-third of her skull was covered in fractures. A bit of her own shirt had been shoved into her trachea to muffle her screams. Welt marks on her body suggested she had been whipped with a belt. Investigators also found a tree branch shoved between her legs. It turned out that Marilyn had been pressured into becoming an informant, meant to provide info to police about people buying and selling drugs, and some investigators thought maybe this viciousness had been inflicted by someone she'd ratted on, someone wanting revenge. But Marilyn had been a reluctant informant to begin with, and really hadn't provided much useful intel, so that seemed unlikely. Police told reporters they were working under the assumption that she was their killer's fourth victim. Number five was the youngest yet. On April 16, 1969, 13-year-old Don Louise Basom was found roadside in Ypsilanti. She'd been repeatedly stabbed in the chest and genitals, then strangled with an electrical cord tied around her neck. As with some of the previous victims, investigators found fabric stuffed in her mouth. It was noteworthy that Dawn was wearing only a blouse and bra when she was found, because when she'd last been seen, she had on a distinctive orange mohair sweater. She'd been wearing it the night before as she walked home from a friend's house, which was less than a mile from her own. She made that walk all the time, and this time she didn't even make it alone. She'd had another friend walking back with her up until the last five blocks. Then Dawn and the friend parted ways and she was never seen alive again. While Dawn's murder wasn't the last, it was a pivotal one in terms of the investigation because her mohair sweater was found in a deserted farmhouse just a hundred yards from the road where her body had been placed. In the basement of this farmhouse, police found more of her clothes, electrical cord matching the type used to strangle her, and also fresh blood. Forensic analysts descended on the scene and tested everything like crazy, which is what made it even weirder when more evidence was found in the basement a week later. A detective doing a routine check of this cordoned-off crime scene found an earring that had belonged to Marilyn's skeleton and a bit of cloth torn from Don's blouse. This is a little confusing, so let me spell it out. These things weren't there a week earlier. Police had examined everything thoroughly, and these new items were left out in the open. In other words, the killer had come back and left more death trinkets to intentionally screw with police. Again, that was in April. Police and psychiatrists and all sorts of people were coming out of the woodwork with theories on what type of person this killer might be. Clearly, he had to seem trustworthy. As one expert said,
2: An individual like this is not someone who, on the surface, appears to be very peculiar and bizarre. It's someone who might appear rather normal.
0: No one seemed to be running away, screaming, and creeped out by the guy. Police still had no clue who the killer was. That reporter I mentioned, John Cobb, had been checked out and dismissed, as had dozens of tips coming from countless people nationwide. Here's one example. A forensic psychiatrist who had worked in Boston during a spree of stranglings in 1964 was now working at a hospital in Ypsilanti. Dr. Ames Roby had never believed that Albert DeSalvo, the guy convicted of those Boston killings, was guilty. In fact, Roby became infamous for serving as DeSalvo's defense expert during the 1967 trial. He was so hated for his defense of DeSalvo that he was more or less run out of town. Anyway, now with this new series of killings in his new home of Ypsilanti, Roby said, See, I told you, DeSalvo didn't kill those people in Boston, and whoever did has followed me here to kill these young women and girls. Which didn't cause many to question DeSalvo's Boston guilt, but it did make police wonder if Roby was actually killing the Michigan victims just to prove he was right about DeSalvo being innocent. Confused yet? Yeah, me too. And this is the mess police were trying to untangle when they found the sixth victim. On June 9th, three teens found a partially nude and mutilated woman's body near a clump of bushes on an abandoned farm. A different abandoned farm than the one we talked about earlier. Like the third victim, the odd one out that not everyone was convinced really was part of the series, victim number six had been shot. Sheriff Harvey got an idea. With all the previous victims, there was evidence suggesting the killer had come back after depositing the body possibly to gloat over his handiwork and further mutilate the victim. Harvey thought, what if we stake out the location to see if the killer comes back, as he's done with his previous victims? We might be able to catch this guy virtually in the act. Harvey went so far as to talk to reporters and say, Hey, we've got this body. We think the killer's the same one we're looking for. We're being open with you in hopes that you won't publish anything about it until tomorrow so we can spend tonight staking out the location and trying to catch this guy. Unfortunately, one of the teens who had found the body had already alerted the press. So the story was on the street before Harvey even made the request. Harvey was pissed. He fumed, How many more women were going to have to die? before we catch this killer. News about the co-ed killer's sixth victim spread faster than law enforcement would have liked, and not only because it thwarted their plan to stake out the body in hopes of catching the murderer, they also hadn't been able to nail down who the victim was before word about her death hit newspapers nationwide. Investigators could tell by the state of the body that the young woman had been killed recently, so they poured through newly filed missing persons reports to no avail. Listen to this heartbreaking paragraph from an Associated Press story that ran June 10, 1969: "Police thought they had identified the girl and called the supposed parents to the morgue to identify the body, but the trail proved cold when the couple said the victim was not their missing daughter." End quote. Can you imagine those parents getting that phone call? The heartbreak they must have felt leading up to the viewing, the mixture of horror and relief and guilt they must have felt looking at a mutilated corpse and realizing it wasn't their daughter? Another set of parents got the same phone call a day later. This time, the body was their daughter. She was 21-year-old Alice Kalem, a UM graduate student who'd gone missing the day before. She'd last been seen walking home after going to a friend's party. Alice's father, Joseph Calum, didn't just mourn. He raged at the university, screaming that Alice should be buried in the front lawn of the U.M. president. He said, they can have her so they'll remember. I don't want to look at her. I'm not going through all this. He promised to lobby Michigan's lawmakers to get involved, quote, before this becomes an all-boys school with all the girls dead, end quote. He couldn't have found Sheriff Harvey's comments in that same news story very comforting. Harvey's insight was this, quote, We're dealing with a real psycho. It's somebody who knows the area. He's got to be a nut, and he's playing a game with us, end quote. After Alice's body was discovered, everything changed in the investigation. Any pressure law enforcement had felt earlier was now nothing compared to what rained down. The public was so frustrated that they pooled money to hire a Dutch psychic named Peter Hercos, a man who had fallen off a ladder at age 30, gone into a coma, and then claimed to have extrasensory perception, a.k.a. ESP, after he awoke. Here's Hercos talking in an interview on an old show called The Open Mind with Bill Jenkins.
1: You know, I came in America in 1956, and nobody believed me. But over all these years, on murder cases and Harvard cases, case, I did about... How many murder cases I worked on? Since
0: I've
1: known you? Yeah. Oh, over 500. It's about 500. They're through in true in the gas chamber. Two guys. Where's your uh, success rate? Say like 500 cases? Well, your... I would say about 80. About 80%? You know, I never worked on a case, but I always worked with the police.
0: If you had trouble hearing that last part, he said that he always worked alongside the police. He didn't want to be at odds with investigators. He wanted access to files and evidence, particularly articles of clothing that he would touch to get psychic vibrations off of or whatever. I don't know if he was psychic, but he does seem to have been intuitive enough that I think he was at least helpful in a few investigations. Regardless, Harvey and others in law enforcement thought he was full of shit. But then, after his arrival, a seventh body was discovered. An 18-year-old EMU student named Karen Beineman had last been seen near campus headed to a wig shop. Hair extensions are popular nowadays, but in the 60s, little clip-ins of partial wigs called falls were more popular to add volume. The Kennedy women loved these things. I'm pretty sure the Kardashians still do. Anyway, Karen had ordered one from a downtown Ann Arbor shop and left around noon, July 23rd, 1969, to pick it up. But she never came home. Her body was found three days later, nude and face down in a wooden riverside gully. She'd been beaten with a blunt instrument and slashed repeatedly. Before word got out, Harvey deployed his stakeout plan.
1: I said, let's keep that under wraps. Let's go back to the old theory that the criminal always comes back to the scene of the crime. For some reason, that has always been a theory.
0: After Karen was photographed and thoroughly examined at the scene...
1: We took a mannequin and put it down where the body was.
0: The mannequin came courtesy of a local J.C. Penney store. Harvey gathered his deputies and told them the plan.
1: I said, we're going to stake it out. The area is flooded with mosquitoes. Oh, my God, those poor... We gave the deputies shields and everything else. And I know they were... This is like one, two o'clock, 12 o'clock in the morning. And uh, we had patrol cars out, we had deputies out, we had the thing pretty well sealed off. So if he did come back there, we had been able to trap him.
0: But things didn't go quite as planned.
1: I think my men got just a little bit tired of getting bitten by mosquitoes. I I really do believe that because someone said, there's somebody down by
0: that body. Well, everybody
1: just swooped on it.
0: But it was dark, communication was tough, people were tired. To this day, most people believe the killer had come to the site, but figured out it was being watched and managed to get away.
1: Well, the Detroit Free Press got a hold of that, and right away, Keystone cops, Mm -hmm. huh?
0: At this point, Harvey was edged out by state police on the hardcore investigating and instead saddled with assisting Peter Hercos, the supposed psychic, who asked to visit the spot where Karen's body had been discovered.
1: So I thought, well, I'm going to watch this show. So after the state police left, Mr. Hercos goes down there. I'll never forget it, as long as I live. Got on his knees where the body was and put his hand like he's meditating. Then I thought, oh, brother, that's it for me. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm out of here. Well, he gave a press release that night at the Holiday Inn.
0: He means press conference.
1: I did not go. I was no part of Peter Urquhart. And in that press release, he said, you're going to find a homemade ladder. Big clue. You're going to arrest an individual who will have foreign money on his possession. He was not born in this country, and he is a young man. Boy, that's a heck of a lot of clues, you know. I thought, boy, we'll be able to solve this in no time at all, (laughs) you know.
0: But an Ypsilanti state trooper was watching that press conference. He'd recently gone on vacation with his family and had left his nephew with keys to watch his house and take care of his dog while he was gone. In his basement, he had noticed his ladder wasn't where he had left it. Plus, there were black spots of paint on it and on his basement floor. He called his nephew, John Norman Collins, and asked if he'd been doing painting in the basement. Collins said no. But the uncle, David Lyke, felt uneasy. In part because Collins had been born in Canada, and he'd just heard Horkis predict that the Michigan killer was not born in this country. I had mentioned Collins earlier. He was the young man whose friends had tentatively ID'd to police as someone they thought they saw with Joan Shell the night she died. They weren't sure, though, and Collins' mother said he was home with her in Centerline, Michigan that whole weekend, so he had been nixed as a potential suspect. Collins was clean-cut, quick to smile, and popular with ladies, but he was also known to have an unsettling side. Here's what we know about his background. His mother, Loretta Gerard, was born in Warren, Michigan in 1923 and was about 20 when she married a Canadian named Richard Chapman. Loretta and Richard had three children during their six-year marriage. John Norman, born in 1947, was the youngest of those three kids, and he was only two when Loretta and Richard divorced. I don't know why they divorced. If you look at some family trees made public on Ancestry.com, he abandoned the family around the time the youngest came along, but one of his nephews later insisted to an author that wasn't the case. I can't ask Richard because he died in 1982. Anyway, after the couple split, Loretta took her three kids back stateside, where she remarried a guy named William Collins, who formally adopted Loretta's three kids, giving them his surname. But William was reportedly abusive, and Loretta left him around 1956. So that would have been when her youngest, John, was about nine. And when I mention John Norman's unsettling side, this is what I'm talking about. One girlfriend remembered him screaming biblical passages at her because she supposedly danced too provocatively near him. Another remembered him getting grossed out and, more than that, angry that she was on her period when they were making out. Like he screamed at her that she was disgusting. And there's a story that he once walked in on his sister with a man who wasn't her husband, and he beat the both of them bloody. Maybe unsettling is an understatement. But those instances didn't line up with how John Norman normally behaved. He was usually soft-spoken, friendly, the kind of guy who would offer a girl a ride home because, gee whiz, there's a killer on the loose and I would feel awful if anything happened to you. He'd seem so earnest about it that a lot of the girls would agree without thinking twice. Sheriff Harvey put it this way.
1: You'd have seen that kid, haircut, tie, suit, nice young college kid, and you say... Jeez, oh man, this is the kind of kid I'd like to have my daughter go out with.
0: But a flood of evidence suddenly began pouring in that, once vetted, all seemed to point at Collins. For example, a few witnesses stepped forward saying they had seen Karen, the latest victim, with a man on a motorcycle near the wig shop, where she'd gone to pick up her hairpiece around 1 p.m. the day she disappeared. One of the store's workers remembered Karen because she'd said she'd done two things that day she never would have predicted for herself. She'd bought a wig, and she'd accepted a ride from a stranger, pointing to the man on a motorcycle outside. Around the same time, a campus patrolman named Larry Mathewson, who knew Collins peripherally, said he remembered seeing him driving around on a motorcycle the day Karen disappeared. He showed a photograph of Collins to workers at the wig shop, and they said, wow, that sure looks like the same guy. There was forensic evidence that tied him to the case, too. While some of the painted-over spots in the lake's basement were red-hued wood stain, other spots were blood, and they matched Karen's type. Investigators also found tiny bits of cut hair clinging to Karen's underwear hair that appeared consistent with a bunch of hair found in the basement, where Collins' aunt had a habit of giving haircuts to her husband and two sons. Collins was convicted in August 1970 in the murder of Karen Beineman. He was never tried for the other killings because in Michigan, a first-degree murder conviction is an automatic life sentence without parole. It is worth noting that the Jane Mixer murder, the third victim, whose shooting death didn't quite line up with the others, ended up being tied to a different man via DNA testing in 2004. Gary Lederman, by then 62 years old, was a retired nurse who'd worked as a traveling pharmaceutical salesman in the region. He was convicted and sentenced to life in prison, proclaiming his innocence until his death behind bars in 2019 at age 74. Collins had also maintained his innocence for decades. In 2019, however, DNA testing tied Collins to the murder of Alice Kalem, the second-to-last victim. Around the time of those tests, a cousin of Collins turned over to police and media a batch of letters Collins had written from prison. In them, Collins admitted to knowing several of the slain girls. He had denied knowing any of them previously, but he insisted that his roommate killed them, not him. Never mind that he never mentioned this earlier, which is extra odd when considering that same roommate had testified against Collins during his trial, so the notion that he would protect this guy makes no sense. Anyway, Collins is still alive, serving his life sentence in Michigan's Ionia Correctional Facility. His suspected victim count is still seven, because even though Jane Mixer is no longer on the list, Collins was tied to another victim, 17-year-old Roxy Ann Phillips, whose body was found in early July 1969 in Monterey, California, where Collins and a friend happened to be on a road trip. Roxy died June 30th, which would mean she was the sixth of Collins' suspected seven victims. Though Collins was indicted in that case, after his Michigan conviction, California officials dropped their efforts to have him extradited. To research this story, I read the 1976 book, The Michigan Murders by Edward Keyes, which, by Sheriff Harvey's account, is well written, but Keyes also put a lot of fiction there. Throughout the book, Keyes used synonyms for Collins, all of the victims, and a few other players. So even though it's labeled a true crime story and was a finalist for a prestigious Edgar Award in the Best Fact Crime Book category, I had to corroborate what I got from there with contemporary news coverage. A 2019 Detroit Free Press article by my former colleague Frank Witzel was helpful, as were newscasts by Detroit TV reporter Rob Wolchek, whose work I stumbled on through another former co-workers podcast. That one, from M.L. Elric, is called Soul of Detroit. Crimes of the Centuries is a production of the Obsessed Network. To learn more about its shows, go to ObsessNetwork.com. This case was researched and written by me, Amber Hunt, and produced by Garrett Tiedemann. Steve Tipton edited the script. Original music is by Bruce Hunt and Andrew Higley. Other music comes from Blue Dot Sessions and Universal Music Productions. If you like us, help us out by rating and reviewing us on Apple Podcasts. For more information or to recommend a case, go to CenturiesPod.com. On Instagram and Twitter, we're at CenturiesPod, and check out our Crimes of the Centuries podcast Facebook page.